I'm Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. This is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Scott, another great day hanging out with you over the weekend. Some nice steaks on the grill. And it's all that, that time of, of year. you got to maximize the grill time. Yeah, and then for me, working overnight, being outdoors during the, during the light hours, getting to feel the sun on your skin just feels extra special, especially in, uh, in the summer when you get to be carefree. And uh, yeah. I will say one thing. I'm, I'm angry at this state because we get 40 below wind chills in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, over 100 with the heat index in the summer. I feel like we should get a break in the summer. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I grew up in the South, so I don't mind feeling a little warm. Mm. And, you know, here in Minnesota, we get to have all of the seasons, like in a very real way. So I appreciate the summer because... I know what's coming. <laughs> That's, yeah, especially but, working overnight. But I remember one day uh, coming home from the store or something and going down my street and seeing how beautiful all the leaves were, the bright yellows and oranges. Yeah. And, you know, in the spring, you talked about how um, your dog, Radar, he really feels spring um, in a in a real tactile way. Yeah. You know, feeling the ice melting on the lake, but then also feeling, you know, the bit of snow that's left behind, but also the sun is out. Yeah. So shout out to um, Minnesota winter and summer and spring and fall, the four seasons of Minnesota. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you who... Um, I don't, well, this is a weird transition, but I was going to say who doesn't get a shout out, but I guess we're talking about him. So while at your house, um, we had a little moment of putting all of this cancel culture um, into play. So as, as as is normal at your place, you know, music videos are just kind of rolling on the screen and an R. Kelly video rolls up. Mm-hmm. And I immediately like I, I don't know. I, I won't speak for you. When when you happen to hear um, an R. Kelly video or something come across, are you instantly thinking about what everyone is thinking about these days? Or of course. You just, yeah. So, um, so I was like, well, we got to turn this off. And no one would be there if we didn't turn it off or if we continue to listen. You know, there, there's it's not like there's outside judgment there, but it's gotten to a point to where it's just a part of my core values to not – engage that because I can't listen to any of those lyrics without applying them to teenagers or, or even younger. What what era would you say was his heyday? What um, The big one was Ignition, right? Isn't that the title? Of- or the remix to Ignition was the big one. Um, I, but I remember... I remember in my high school dances, um, Step in the Name of Love right. being big. But, you know, all the way back to me being in... Um, I think it was second or third grade is when Space Jam was out. I believe I can fly and all that stuff. So he's he's had more than a decade of a heyday, maybe even two whole decades. Okay, so in that time frame when he was popular, I was paying zero attention to that. So you okay, you, so was, you weren't plugged into R. Kelly anyway. No, no R and B, no no um, pop R and B, nothing like that. So for for him to be canceled, it's not there was no cognitive dissonance for you. It's not no. like you had to go throw away your CDs. Is there an artist you've had to throw away? Yeah. Who? <sighs> okay, so this is just something that has just happened, like in the last six months. But you, do you recognize the name Ryan Adams? No, unfortunately, I'm okay. sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, Ryan Adams is uh, sort of an alternative rock. Uh, icon, you know, he's a incredible guitarist. He's done some uh, covers that I really appreciate, but his originals um, just 
really put a bookmark in that era that he was popular, you know, like in the um, late 90s, early 2000s is when I caught on to him. Sure. So he was married to Mandy Moore for a while. Okay. Oh, I know Mandy Moore. Oh, I, and I'm looking at his photos now. Yeah, I don't even recognize him by face. He, he um, evidently suppressed her career, right? So, cause, so that's one thing. He was like, he was like doing uh, what Amy Beach's husband did. To her, right, you know, right. saying you're you're not you can write your little ditties here at home, but you're not going to go out on tour as long as we're married. And that's what he was doing to Mandy Moore, right? So her career career stalled, or I don't I don't know if she's trying to get back to touring or recording. But then in March, it came out that he was sharing explicit photos with a girl of like 14. Oh my gosh! See, and I'm just I, and right there, I'm like, I'm out, I'm out, I can't. I can't even acknowledge him as an influence, you know, as a... And, and did you feel a, a sort of kind of way for having to cancel him? Were you like, oh, but... Because that's how a lot of people feel about R. Kelly. They're like, oh, but his music is so good and blah, blah, blah. And... It um, wasn't hard. It wasn't I mean, hard for you. No, yet. he also has a reputation of being a jerk, you know, really difficult to, to deal with. And I've seen him in concert before and... You know, it was fine. Uh, it, I don't remember any highlights. It's not like every single one of his shows was some groundbreaking, you know, musical event. Well, for what it's worth, um, I don't know if Mandy Moore has really taken off, but she did sing all of the songs in Tangled. Yeah. Which, uh, did you did you see that movie? No, but I knew that she was involved with because it. we were talking earlier about how you've never seen lion king what wtf man but but you're gonna <laughs> but you're gonna you're gonna see the new one all right i'll do, I'll you're, do the you're gonna see lion king featuring beyonce but you see the thing <laughs> <laughs> but you see the thing is is that i'm from the disney generation of the jungle book and i don't even want to start down that road right now with the jungle book one day we need to talk about that i'd um um, and, and we do need to get into the interview that we're going to today, but uh, I'll, I'll just say in my uh, in grad school, I took a class called African-American Music. Yeah. And that sounds like a, a broad sort of title. But what the class was, was starting from the um, the slave songs and the Negro spirituals all the way up into um, modern day rap and hip hop and all that sort of thing. And all of the different appropriations along the way. Yeah. We spent a, you know, my teacher was white, but she loved to drag Elvis Presley. And I, <laughs> and I was right there with her. Um, but um, but we actually spent a day talking about Disney and we watched the I Want to Be Like You clip. Yep. And man, that song slapped. And it's, it's really great to sing, but it's, you know, with adult eyes and more <laughs> yeah, historical it. eyes, it's just so obviously messed I up. I just cringe. It's up, man. But it's and okay. So does the fact that it's Louis Prima does that does that play into it as well? Are I you mean, familiar with Louis Prima? Yeah, I mean that plays into it. The um, them using the coconuts to make those monkey snouts that mirror you know, blackface yeah. and, or just the whole concept. I want to be like you, you know, I want to be like the great white man. Anyway, we'll talk about that on another, uh, opus of Triloquy. <laughs> but today, um, uh, I brought up the whole cancel culture thing because that's not really something, um, we apply to these, um, composers, um, of the past and a lot of classical music, um, like organizations, a lot of classical music writers, other podcasts. I want to uh, shout out Katie and Delaney because um, classically black. Yeah, classically black. A couple weeks back, they uh, dragged Strauss real bad, <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, people just want to protect the legacy of these men 
so much despite some of their atrocities. And, and the question always is, well, you have to separate the art from the artist. But as we've already established, you know, we're not doing that with R. Kelly. You're not doing that with um, Adams. What was his name? Ryan Adams. Ryan Adams, you know. No, I don't have any trouble cutting him loose. But but we have um, trouble cutting some of these composers loose for some reason, right? Yeah, I know. And, you know, I've got an episode of Hop Notes coming up that, you know, is putting a focus on Munich because of Oktoberfest. And I, do I put Stra do I use Strauss or not? Yeah. Do If I bring it up, do we talk about the problems or do we just focus on the beer? Right, right. And my point always is, even if the composer is questionable, there were other people around. It's not like they, it's not like Strauss was the only person in Munich writing classical music. Just so many of these uh, other composers and these other figures are kind of washed away, yeah. you know, in, in the books of history for, you know, for other reasons, for very specific reasons, um, you know, that I think we've addressed. Um, and one of those figures I wanted to uh, bring up today as, uh, as a way to get us into today's interview was a guy named George Bridgetower. So do you know who he is? Yeah. Who, what, what do you know about George Bridgetower? Well, he was um, uh, right along the lines of, um, no, that was Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Yeah, an, was an, like, yeah another, another black violinist from uh, days past. He led the first all-black um, regiment in the French Revolution. He was a champion fencer, and he was also real cold on the, uh, on the violin yeah. and, and also wrote music, you know. And I heard that Mozart was really jealous of him early on because he had everything that Mozart wanted. You know, he had like this royal appointment and was getting all this attention. And Mozart's like, well, I want to, I want to be like Chevalier. God forbid we say Mozart was jealous of somebody. <laughs> I think it's but, possible. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it's possible, but we just, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, Joseph Bologna and Chevalier de Saint-Georges, but, um, George Bridgetower, you know, was one of Beethoven's homies and um, the piece of music known today as the Kreutzer Sonata yeah. um, was originally written for him. How, how about we uh, hear just the opening few bars of that sonata? Isaac Stern and Eugene Eastman in that recording there. These days, you know, that piece of music is remembered as the Kreutzer Sonata, but it was originally the Bridge Tower Sonata. George Bridge Tower, this black violinist uh, living living in in Europe during the um, you know late 1700s, early 1800s. Beethoven writes this piece of music, and, and by the way, I've always dreamed to tell this story on Drunk History. We got to make that happen <laughs> one day. Um, so uh, Beethoven writes this piece of music for George Bridgetower. George Bridgetower sights, sight reads the premiere. It's dope. Everyone loves it. Um, they go out to have dinner and drinks or something afterwards. And um, maybe we should reenact this sometime or maybe for the drunk history. <laughs> so uh, they get there. And um, at one point in the night, George Bridgetower sees this woman and says uh, the the historical um accounts say that he said something disparaging about this woman maybe he called her a mm. <laughs> i don't know what words i'm allowed to say but he called her a and a and someone who and whatever oh. um, <laughs> and that pissed beethoven off yeah and 
he, you know, he he was good about stripping the dedication. We all know the story of Beethoven three, right? Uh, stripping the Napoleon, Napoleon dedication. So he stripped the George Bridge Tower dedication from that piece of music, and rededicated it uh, to a guy named Rudolf Kreutzer, yeah. who many believe never even played the piece, but it's now called the Kreutzer Sonata, um, and. Uh, and George Bridge Tower is just one of the many uh, musicians of color that existed, you know, during this quote unquote heyday of classical music, who we don't talk about all the time, who um, who slipped through the cracks of music history. And Lee Koontz, who uh, is featured on this opus of Triloquy, um, you know, one of his big driving things is how black musicians have always been involved with classical music as long as there's been something called classical music. And the organization he runs, uh, the Gateways Music Festival, is a um, is a great conduit in reminding audiences of that, you know, remind audiences of the history and the equal ownership people of the African diaspora have over this um, instrumental music. Um, how we have ownership of it presently and and in the future. So you came in contact with him through Gateways, correct? Right. Um, and I can't remember who passed my name along. Uh, this would have been this would have been about five years ago. The uh, first time I played with the Gateways Festival, but um, someone passed my uh, name along. It takes place in uh, Rochester, New York, uh, at the Eastman School of Music every other year. Um, because of you know financial things and uh, and me and Lee go into that conversation as well and um, again he he doesn't um, you know he doesn't describe it as a diversity initiative he calls it a celebration of the achievements of people from the African diaspora in classical music period and 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 that's all it is so um, again it's a, a like a lot like the Sphinx conference is one of these big family reunions where we all get to um, come together and uh, you know all the who's who's of black classical music come out. Um, you know, one of my favorite memories is playing a Rachmaninoff uh, concerto with Stuart Goodyear at the front. Oh, nice. Um, Anthony McGill, a principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic, has uh, done concertos with the Gateways Festival. I've met a lot of incredible composers. Shout out to Adolphus Hale Stork, who uh, I met at the last uh, Gateways Festival, uh, uh, among uh, many other really great uh, composers, musicians, uh, professionals. And uh, and yeah, none of it would be possible without uh, Lee Koontz. So um, yeah, I chat with him today about the Gateways Festival and the history of blackness in classical music and, and, and what all that means. Really great guy to talk to and a really great conversation that I think you'll enjoy. Lee Koontz, thank you so much for sitting with me today. Thank you, Garrett. It's my pleasure. So uh, the late, great Nina Simone referred to the work she did and the music she engaged in as black classical music. And there's been so many, you know, other discussions about that phrase classical music and what it means and what it should mean. But um, in your work and, and in your studies, uh, you've proven that even the most traditional usage of the phrase classical music has included black people since the beginning. Absolutely. I, I think that for many folks believe that um, um, our presence in the world of classical music is new or something that is recent. Um, but um, as you know, um, people of African descent have been involved in this music since, well, since there was ever a thing called classical music, you know, starting back um, to the time of Henry VIII and then the courts of Henry VII and Henry VIII. So there have been people of African descent involved in this type of music. Why, why is that history um, sort of scant or, or still obscure these days? Well, um, I think there, there are several reasons. One is certainly that 
Um, what most of us are taught in conservatory and music schools, um, you know, it 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 um, it misses all that information. It's not included in the curriculum. So a lot of folks just don't know about it. Um, and I think the other reason is that um, as um, popular music has become much more popular in the black community, um, and music gospel and um, rap and soul and R&B, I think we've forgotten um, in our communities that, that there was once a very strong tradition of classical music, um, even in modern times within our own community. So I think it's a combination of you know us not learning this information in the conservatory, those of us who are musicians, and in the community, um, many of us have forgotten that this music was prominent within our communities. Yeah, it's funny that you, you speak about that not-so-distant uh, tradition of classical music in black communities. You know, my mom tells a story about when she was in kindergarten or first grade. Back in those days, you know, in the lunchroom, you said grace as a, you know, as yeah. a grade or whatever. And accompanying <laughs> that grace every morning. I, fr I wish I could remember the woman's name, she said. But she said this old black woman who would sit at the piano and, uh, and accompany the... <laughs> The, the grace, uh, you know, and uh, then when you talk about the piano being a piece of furniture in so many people's yeah. homes, and, and now that's just not the case. Wow, that, that makes me think about a lot instantly. What's your, um, <laughs> what, what, tell me a little about your uh, musical upbringing. I, I don't know where you went to school or, or where you studied yeah. or anything. You know, before I can go there, I mean, that, that story about, the, you know, the kindergarten teacher and your mom, I think that is so poignant because there was a time when um, the public schools provided, um, especially in larger cities, provided um, really high quality music instruction um, in instruments, not just singing, but in, right. in, in instruments. And so then that led to certainly this knowledge of the language of instrumental music, um, classical music or otherwise in our communities in a way that doesn't exist now, because a lot of our kids are not getting that in public schools. Um, but I grew up in Chicago, and I grew up on the south side of Chicago um, in a neighborhood called South Shore and then Hyde Park. Um, and, you know, the National Association of Negro Musicians, which was at that time predominantly a classical music organization, was founded, I think, in 1919. They're celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. And um, it was a group of mostly uh, classically trained um, black musicians, African-American musicians, who were excluded from the stages um, in Chicago and around the country. Um, and so they created their own. They had their own concert series, their own chamber music groups, their own orchestras and everything. So I grew up in Chicago, which was a like, was like very many large cities in this country. Um, there was a strong black classical musician, music tradition in those communities. And so our black churches, especially the, the big mainline churches, uh, Protestant churches, had pipe organs mm -hmm. and they had people who could play those pipe organs and they had chamber music groups and they had people who could play in those chamber music groups who looked like the congregants. So the world I grew up in was a world that was a lot more, um, there were many, many more people at that time, and this was in the 60s and 70s, people of African descent playing this, this thing we now call classical music. Um, and that tradition is, you know, is slowly disappearing within our, within our community. So, oh yeah, go, go ahead. So I, I grew up in Chicago. I went to um, the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio for 
an undergraduate degree in piano performance. Um, I'm a pianist. And then um, went to the Eastman School of Music for um, another a master's degree in also piano performance. You know, when you talk about Oberlin and, and Eastman, um, I think about sort of the, the way I came up uh, through my, uh, you know, my hometown's uh, university, the University of Memphis, went on to USC. And, you know, when I look back and the more people I talk to, it seems like I wish I had had that HBCU experience. <laughs> Was that something you ever thought about? It is. I mean, and, you know, my father, parents were graduates of HBCUs, Central State and Wilberforce. And, um, you know, I really struggle with this, this notion of going to an HBCU. Um, and getting um, kind of the reinforcement that's that you know we kind of miss when we're at, we're in other kinds of institutions. But I don't regret going to Oberlin. I don't regret going to Eastman. Um, it was there were fine educations there. As well. When you uh, when you went to Oberlin, you know, uh, moving from Chicago, did you take that? Uh, I'm wondering about the blackness that you took with you because you you had a strong foundation and you know the history of uh, black classical music in Chicago. Did you ever find yourself challenged um, at Oberlin or at Eastman or, or any anywhere else that, that you've worked um, concerning bringing your blackness with you and, and really engaging classical music as something we have equal ownership of? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I was that that astute and aware when I was 17 or 18 years old. Woke, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't woke. <laughs> I just knew that the world I lived in as a classical, as a black classical musician looked different than the world that I had just gone to at Oberlin. But, you know, the, the fact is, for many of us in our training, even at early ages, we're in environments that we are usually the only ones. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember playing for All City um, Chorus and being the accompanist for the All City Chorus. And, Course, and, and they were like out of 300 or four or five black kids in that in that choir um, and so even even growing up you know out the training part of my life was really in an environment that was not very um, inclusive people that I have sense so when I went to Oberlin I guess I I just wasn't really aware that um, you know well okay so where are the black people in this this survey course of 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 music history, mm-hmm. this year-long survey course. Why aren't there any black people in this book? I think there's what they, they always include Duke Ellington, and they would always include William Grant still. Right. And you would think, well, my gosh, that's it, a jazz guy, you know, and, and this, this other classical guy who's long gone. And so the depth of knowledge about our involvement in this music, um, I, I don't think I, I grew to that place until many years later. And then you mentioned Duke Ellington, and you know I didn't learn this until I got in, uh, got into radio. You know he has a lot of, of I hate to say non jazz, but you know orchestral compositions that work just fine on on the concert stage, just as fine as uh, our friend George Gershwin, and, <laughs> and, and, and we just don't engage even that. You know we we don't even go in depth when it comes to the most famous. Uh, names when when we talk about black instrumental music, um, I, I'm wondering if you had like a peak moment or or peak moments when you decided okay it, it's time for me to really engage this thing called classical music in a much more equitable way in, in, in a way that shows much more energy toward black history and classical music. And, and let me say about Duke Ellington. I mean, he is among you know that incredible group of musical geniuses 
um, who frequently gets relegated to this kind of uh, what some people believe is the subcategory of jazz. Right. Um, the thing is, he is, regardless of the genre, he was an extraordinary musician and a, and a musical genius. Um, I think that um, in some, you know, some time ago, Gershwin was also put in that category. Well, sure. you know, he's kind of a jazzy guy. He was a musical genius. I mean, I, 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 I played when I was a kid that, you know, the, the Rhapsody in Blue, and I, I actually picked it up a couple of weeks ago um, and started working on it again because I found a, 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 the, the score at a yard sale here in New York. Oh, so I thought, well, let me try to play. And so, you know, I've forgotten all of it, but I'm playing it and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is an extraordinary piece. So I think that Ellington and Gershwin get, get pushed over into this category because they're using this vernacular that is this American jazz vernacular as not good as what um, is known to come from Western Europe. And I, that to me is just offensive. Yeah. So I think that the world is changing a bit and beginning to recognize the genius of Ellington, the genius of, of Gershwin, um, and that makes me really, really happy. And I, I think that some of my um, knowledge of this actually came about through my association with Armenta, um, Hamins Dumasani, the founder of Gateways, and the Gateways Music Festival. Um, I joined the board of Gateways in 1997, and it... It opened my eyes in a way that um, you know they hadn't been opened before, and so I started to really explore our um, relationship to this thing we call classical music. Our, I mean, people of African descent, and that began my journey. So I would say it started relatively late, you know, in 1997. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about the Gateways Music Festival, but I, 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 you know, <laughs> you're talking you're talking about Gershwin has just made me think so. Uh, I, maybe a month ago, two, three months ago, um, I hosted a panel for the Minnesota Orchestra on the topic of Gershwin um, as a cultural appropriator. Is he or, or isn't he? I'm curious. Do you have any opinions there? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, aren't we all cultural appropriators? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that it is, it is the world that we live in. Um, I think that, um, you know, It is a, yeah, I think that, that his genius, um, he borrowed from his environment at the time that he lived um, and the, the places in which he lived. Um, and I think all great uh, artists do that very same thing. So, uh, so the Gateways Music Festival, um, I first attended uh, a couple uh, festivals back. Um, and, and I'll tell you, uh, when I left the airport, got to the hotel, uh, basically, in my mind, I was like, all right, well, here we go. Another week of playing, another week of gigs. But very quickly, <laughs> I saw that it was something completely different, just, just something that I had never experienced before. Uh, for, for people who don't know what the Gateways Music Festival is, would you mind uh, giving them a little bit of history about it? Sure. Happy to. Uh, the mission of Gateways is to connect and support professional classical musicians of African descent and enlighten and inspire communities through the power of performance. So Gateways is, um, is celebrating its 26th anniversary this year. It was founded by um, the extraordinary pianist um, Arminta Adams at that time, um, Hummings, um, and founded in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 1993, and moved to 
Rochester, New York in 1995, when she um, assumed the faculty position at the Eastman School of Music. Mm. And it's been and based in Rochester since 1995. And the festival is, you know, technically it is a six-day classical music um, festival with 125 musicians and about 50 performances over those six days that celebrates musicians and the music um, of, of people of African descent. Um, so for six days, there is this extraordinary series of concerts, of panels, and you're moderating the panel this year, a film series, and solo recitals, and chamber music recitals. But more than that, it is, I think, what Michael Morgan, how Michael Morgan describes it. Michael, our, our music director and conductor, Michael says the Gateways is the biggest family reunion he's ever been to. <laughs> yes. Where everybody is related, not by blood, but by music. And their love of the music, this, this thing we call classical music. And I think that that is really the power of Gateways. It is this extraordinary family reunion, and it's the community of the musicians, and it's the community of folks who live in Rochester. It's all one big family reunion, and it's, it is... The spirit um, is is palpable when all of those folks come together. It is quite extraordinary. It is, and I remember uh, Maestro Morgan saying at one of the first rehearsals I attended, um, he said something along the lines of, "You know, this festival is just like all the other ones, except we're all actually having fun here." <laughs> and, and that's yes. definitely the case. And you, yes. and you describe the Gateways Festival as not a diversity initiative. Why do you use that language? Yeah, and, and you know, I think that there's this assumption sometimes that um, anything that people of African descent or Latino descent or anyone who's not white, anything we do is somehow in service of promoting diversity or, or trying to get black folks on predominantly white stages mm -hmm. around the country. And there's nothing wrong with that. that Diversity initiatives that exist within this country are important, um, and they're doing great work. Gateways was not founded to be a diversity initiative. Our, our, our mission is not to increase diversity within the classical music field. Um, I like to say that we're just black people playing music that we love, and we're coming together to do it in a, in a space and a place that is uplifting, affirming, and safe. Um, that's it. Now, whether or not that contributes to diversity within the field of classical music, great. It doesn't, great. Uh, but we are black people playing great music at a high level, um, and we want to be with each other and to support each other. And something that I don't think uh, should be understated is that it's not just a convening of black classical musicians from across the country, but from around the whole world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that has grown significantly um, since... You know, the, the Artistic Programs Committee took um, kind of the leadership role when, when our founder retired back in 2009. And in those days, you know, we were having trouble filling all the seats in Gateways in mm. 2009. Now, this year, you know, we, we, we had to unfortunately turn away 250 people. Right. But we had musicians from you know, London, Berlin, and Dusseldorf, and Bogota, and Santo Domingo, and Sao Paulo, um, all over the world. Folks are, are, are noticing what's happening in gateways and noticing how special it is, and they want to be a part of it. 
Now, you, you mentioned, um, you know, having to turn so many people away, unfortunately. What, you know, it, it seems like there's just a, a thirst for, for black classical musicians to really connect and meet each other and, and, and fellowship. And th that has to be one of the biggest challenges of gateways is, you know, being, being limited in uh, as far as how many uh, musicians you can serve and have at this festival. A sore topic for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It causes me a lot of pain because I know what how how important gateways is um, for those positions and how much they need gateways. Um, and so we we're working as hard as we can to grow the capacity of the festival so that we can invite more um, musicians. It, related to the musicians, something that's happening um, that we wanted to happen while is that people are coming to Rochester for the festival from out of town, so mm. audience members. Oh, wow. And which is, we wanted Gateways to become a destination festival. And so we think that, you know, all around the country, there are black folks who love classical music, but they don't see themselves represented on the stages of the orchestras within their hometowns. Right. Or their kids are playing um, classical music but they don't have any teachers that look like their kids. Right. So um, I was on, the, on a phone conference with our concert office yesterday, and we're you know, working out details about lots of stuff. And the concert office said, well, we've been getting calls from all around the country. People wanted to know the details of the festival, where to stay, where they park, well, what the car. And I thought, wow, that's amazing, because we're getting them too. I didn't know the concert office was getting them too. So I think that in addition to Gateways, Musicians having this kind of international pool, I think that um, now there is an audience pool from around the country that we've not experienced before, and it's really great. So uh, along my journey, you know, I, I've I've been a part of different um, uh, diversity uh, initiatives and that sort yes. of thing, and. Um, while involved with one, um, I, I had to deal a lot with um, how how can I say like the legality. Of, of having something focused, you know, specifically toward black people. I was even um, on stage at, uh, at one point and someone told me, well, the program that you're involved in technically is illegal, but I guess they just let it, let it run anyway. Do you run into any legal challenges when it comes to uh, creating something that focuses on members of the black diaspora exclusively? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we, say, and we are, this is true, uh, we say that Gateways is open to everyone. Yeah. It is not an exclusionary organization. We're open to everyone. But we say that our focus is on musicians who have a, sh a, a specific shared life experience. Um, and so we do not discriminate. Gateways is open to everyone. Anyone can apply to um, but our focus is definitely on the shared life experiences of people of African descent, which is a very particular and unique experience in the world in which we live. How do you think that shared life experience manifests on stage or in rehearsals? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, um, we're, we're working on all these uh, PSAs and, and ads and everything for, um, you know, publicizing the festival in mm -hmm. a couple of weeks. 
and I was viewing one of them yesterday from uh, one of the big TV radio stations here uh, in Rochester, and they, they one of the clips they use is of you know when when um, Stuart Goodyear finished the Rachmaninoff piano concerto with the orchestra, and Michael Morgan standing up and congratulating him, and they're holding their hands high in the air, and if you look back and you see the orchestra, people are smiling. People are engaged. And I can't begin to tell you how many orchestras we've all seen where you know the audience is applauding wildly and the orchestra is kind of just blank faces. Yeah, ones and, I played with. <laughs> exactly, just blank faces. And so not even acknowledging the, the, the applause. Well, that's the conductor's job. Well, there's a sense of joy just when the musicians walk into the room on the stage of Kodak Hall for the rehearsals, there's a sense of family, sense of joy. And like you said, Michael, people want to be there. And so I think that, that comes through in the music making. Um, I, don't, I can't recall in the um, now 10 years that I've been in this position, any conflicts amongst musicians, any conflicts with Michael. And I should knock on wood, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, it's just not something that happens at Gateways. There is this sense that um, you know, we are all here about to do something really important and that means so much to us, um, and we have great joy about it. Now, um, that specific uh, performance that you brought up, uh, Stuart Goodyear playing uh, Rachmaninoff, that performance has uh, come up on my podcast before. I, uh, me... Uh, uh, Katie and Delaney uh, talked about it for a little while and um, as I'm sure you remember that concert uh, didn't go completely smoothly there was a little uh, interruption uh, in the audience and unfortunately that that interruption came from what uh, looked like um, a, a school group like a predominantly black school that uh, came in to to hear the Gateways Orchestra and uh, what I talked to Katie and Delaney about was how um, you know those kids were at a disservice for not maybe not being prepped appropriately or not understanding what they what they were about to see. I mean, what, what was your reaction um, to to that situation? Yeah, that was quite amazing, and I think that the way Stewart and Michael and the orchestra recovered was um, astounding to me. Um, it was a group from a summer program. Um, in Rochester um, that um, our former board chair and some others had worked on getting those kids there. There might have been about a hundred of them. And they got there early um, because they had the, the organization provided lunch for the, for the concert. Mm -hmm. So they got there early and they sat in front. And I think for kids for whom the music is kind of uh, unusual or not known, I think we could have found a better seating area for them. But um, I was not upset by what happened um, at all. Um, those predominantly black children, I think they were 99% you know, black, um, or children of African descent, those are our kids. Yeah. That is our community, and we have responsibility for helping to raise them up. And so I agree with you 100%. We could certainly have done more preparation for them. Um, sent an ensemble out to talk to the students about what they were going to see, um, 
do all kinds of things, but a lot of that has to do with our limited capacity as an organization. As you know, at that time, we were a staff of one, me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so how, how do we do all the things that we know we should be doing? So I think that, um, you know, the orchestra recovered beautifully in, in the day of modern technology. Um, the recordings, you would never, ever know that anything happened in that spot. Um, so we go, we move forward. But those are our kids, and we are responsible for them, and we love them. You're making me think about the relationship between um, orchestra and audience. I mean, the, when you go to see a Gateway's performance and you look on stage and you see all of these black musicians, the audience still just doesn't quite look like that. I mean, what, 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 can you, what can you say on that topic as far as that disconnect? Yeah, I think that for many folks in the black community, um, classical music still is a foreign language. And I think that's, you know, as I mentioned before, growing up in Chicago in the 60s and um, 70s, early 70s, you know, every, every third grader um, in Chicago, I started, you know, I started in kindergarten, every third grader at that time was required to play a musical instrument. There were no if, ands, or buts. This was the entire school system in the city of Chicago. And it was the same in other cities like Washington, D.C., and I think Detroit. Many cities had requirements like that for kids to learn how to play a musical instrument. And so the, the, the language of instrumental music, the language of what we call classical music, was more familiar to us. And I think that um, that is you know, something that we've lost within our community. So um, on Sunday mornings um, during the Gateways Music Festival, we go to play in 25 30 black churches around, not black churches, I should say that, and houses of worship around the city. And many of them happen to be black um, Protestant churches, houses mm -hmm. of worship. And what we find is that many people think, well, oh, we've heard gateways already. They came to our morning service. We don't have to go to the concert. Um, so I think that in some ways that program does our audience building effort a disservice. Um, in that folks feel like they've already heard gateways in the morning at their worship service so they don't have to go. Um, but I do think that the bigger picture issue is that even though there are black musicians up on the stage, the music is still considered a foreign language to many people in the African-American community in, in, in these days. And what that also makes me think about is how foreign um, the spaces are for a lot of black folks. Yes. Just going into yes. that concert hall for the first yes. time or getting them into that concert hall for the first time. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny you say that because um, you know, I grew up in Chicago and I live in New York City now and um, folks in Rochester, they will say, well, oh wow, that's that's 15 minutes away and it's in downtown Chicago, or downtown Rochester and we're going to have to find parking and mm -hmm. you know, we don't know where to park and and it's, you know, so we have to schedule meetings in the community because folks don't want to come down to to um, Eastman and to the to Eastman School of Music because it's an unfamiliar place to them, um, and I find that fascinating. But you're right; you're absolutely right. It's not a place that um, many folks in the African American community are are frequent. Frequent. Um, Morehouse Glee Club gave a um, extraordinary concert in Rochester back in the spring on their tour, and they did it at. Um, Asbury First United Methodist Church, it's a predominantly white church, 
Um, but folks of African descent were more comfortable going there um, because they've been there before. Mm -hmm. And they have free open parking, this huge parking lot. And so the place was packed. It was standing room only. Wow. And the planners decided to go to Asbury over Eastman because they knew that the community did, did not have that sense of comfort at Eastman as they did at Asbury First United Methodist Church. So that discomfort is real and it does affect, um, you know, participation by people of African descent. Well, so, I mean, for, for me, it, it just sounds like we need to take classical music off yes. the stage. I mean, maybe maybe not yes. all the way off the stage, but you know, we we need to do a better job of making sure that the music we are going to our people and, and not the other yes. way around. Agreed. And as you know, you know, we, we do the, the twenty five thirty performances in the houses of worship. We also do twenty five or thirty performances in um, in community centers and rec centers and homes and stuff like that. But it's only chamber music. I think that the power of gateways is really seeing a hundred plus black musicians playing together on the stage. That's the power. Yeah. And so I think that if we could um, take that full orchestra into the black community, um, you know, why not do something in a park and perform outside in, in a show like you know, many orchestras do. Yeah. The New York Philharmonic goes to Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx every year. Um, so I think that we do need to find a way to get gateways orchestra, the full orchestra in the community, um, as opposed to always assuming that the community will come to uh, Eastman Theater. So what are some of the things that uh, keeps that sort of thing from happening? Or, you know, we, we, what we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, the Gateways Festival, um, as of now, happens every other summer and not every summer. You know, what is it going to take for these more uh, in, engaging community events and maybe even um, an annual Gateways Festival? It's all about um, fundraising and capacity. Um, I think that Gateways has done extraordinary things um, with very, very limited resources. Um, at um, a conference earlier this year, I talked about that and, and how, how much Gateways has been able to accomplish. And at that conference, I said, well, it's, it's not unusual in the black community uh, to be able to pull off something like it was because we are used to making a way out of no way. Mm, mm, um, mm. It is what black people have done since the time immemorial, making a way out of no way. That said, after 26 years of making a way out of no way and running uh, with complete volunteer support and on a shoestring, um, we have so vastly outgrown that model. Um, so in order to be able to become an annual festival, in order to be able to um, take the orchestra, the full orchestra of the community, in order to be able to invite more musicians, um, we have to have more, significantly more um, financial resources. And that means building the infrastructure of the organization as well. So it's, it's about financial resources and building the infrastructure so that there's more than, you know, now there are two staff people, but that's really insufficient for the scale and scope of the festival the Gateways is and the festival that it wants to become. So, so what can people do to, you know, sort, sort of help build this future of the Gateways Festival? How, how, can, they, um, how can they donate or, or donate their time? Yeah. It's really easy. I mean, to make a donation 
anyone can go to our website, and it's uh, gatewaysmusicfestival.org um, slash donate, um, and you can donate online. Um, and um, there are opportunities for uh, members of our festival planning committee, which is still critical to the work of Gateways. And we also have certainly opportunities for board membership as well. And our board is growing to become a national board, so we're uh, recruiting folks from around the country. So before I uh, let you go, I, I want to ask you uh, just one more question. So, you know, a, a big part of the work I do is uh, curating musical experiences for people, not just selecting music, but, but guiding them through the experience so they, they have a more um, engaging experience with classical music. For um, the black person listening right now who has never really engaged classical music, what, what would be your advice to them as far as an entryway or, or how to really begin um, an appreciation for classical music and, and specifically the black people who have um, helped make it possible historically and, and today? Yeah. Well, now that could have been the entire conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think that, you know, there are, in my mind, there are very few problems with the music itself. Okay. Um, I think that it's a lot of the accoutrement, this is stuff that we put around the music, the off-putting um, physical location experience, the you know, absolute silence in the hall, you have to wear this certain kind of dress, all these people who don't look like me, that's not the music. The music itself, there are no problems with the music. It's the stuff that we put around the music in this um, in this country and maybe around the world that I think is off-putting to people. So I think that assuming that there's nothing wrong with the music, I think that the place to start is with the music and listen to the music. And all of this is so accessible now um, electronically if one has the interest. Mm -hmm. But I would recommend starting with, um, unlike what you and I started with in our training, starting with composers of African descent, and especially those that utilize our folk um, idioms. Um, that music is so accessible. When I hear Florence Price, uh, when I hear Carlos Simon's Amen that we're going to be playing at the festival this year, I think I'm back at home on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. I recognize those sounds. I recognize those tunes. I recognize that language. So. I think starting there for a new classical music listener, um, future lover of African descent is a great place to start. And then when you start there, you realize, wait a minute, the Dvorak is doing the same thing from right. his culture. Right. Rachmaninoff is doing the same thing from his culture. Right? And so I think that the place to start is the, the place that speaks most closely to the language you already speak. Yeah, I love that word culture, and I guess to come back around full circle, we, we began talking about Nina Simone, and um, you know, when I hear her covers of, uh, of Beatles tunes or Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, the language is one that I understand. It comes from the culture that I come from, and in turn, you know, that, that, that leads me down to a deeper appreciation of some of the people that uh, she exposed black audiences to and, and black music listeners to. Yeah, that, that, that culture um, word is important, so I'm, I'm going to have to spend some more time thinking about that one for sure. <laughs> well, Lee, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate this. It is really my pleasure. 
Lee Coons in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. And Garrett, I have to say, I was struck by a couple things in your conversation. Number one, he makes a great point about how classical music is looked at as a foreign language. Yeah. That it's it's something that's so outside the periphery of uh, a lot of people of color growing up that they don't even pay any, pay any attention. Right. You know? Even if some of the sounds and some of the aesthetics are there, um, the the language and the whole conversation surrounding it um, is again j- just foreign to many black folk. But but as Lee was saying toward the end of our conversation, there is classical music out there that does speak to our languages. He mentioned um, uh, he he didn't mention William Levi Dawson, but I thought of that composer when he was talking about music by uh, black composers that speaks to um, our experiences, to our folk traditions and all yeah, that sort I love of thing. That. Yeah, so William Levi Dawson wrote this, um, he wrote the Negro Folk Symphony. So it's this symphony filled with sounds that any black person that knows what a spiritual is or who has ever gone to church would recognize. And and I, I think I really need to reiterate uh, Lee's point in that um, if if you're trying to get into classical music, even if you're not black, try to find the classical music that sort of speaks to your cultural experience. So if you live in Appalachia, go listen to uh, Mark O'Connor. If you if if you live in you know I, I don't know what would tie to Omaha, Nebraska, but I'm I'm sure there's some sort of instrumental music that ties to the culture of where you are, where you live. So um so my personal challenge to you listening is is uh, to try to do that. Find classical music that speaks uh, to, to your cultural experience or, or to your cultural geography or whatever. Can you imagine where we would be if kids were learning to play an instrument just as part of the curriculum like he was talking about? Yeah, most, you know, most kids learn to play a recorder at some point, but that's just about it, I guess. Or maybe some wood block or, um, you know, a xylophone-esque yeah. sort of. Yeah, metallophones and yeah. all that sort of thing. Something like spiels, that. Yeah. But another line that he said, we are used to making a way out of no way. And that made me raise my hands in the air. Oh, goodness I'm gracious. Saying, I'm saying. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, th- that, in, that in itself you could just sit and marinate with for, for so long. When I think about my path, ooh, the, the things I had to do to try to scrounge up some money to, to um, buy cane to make reeds or to get the gas money to go here or there. And, yeah, so please uh, look up <laughs> the Gateways Music Festival and, and support this very important uh, American institution. I was glad to hear him say that inquiries about the festival are way up that even yeah. like in you know apart from him getting inquiries like the venue office is getting inqui- inquiries about where to park and what's it going to cost and everything hopefully which, hopefully there's going to be enough tickets which i thought there were uh, that was another great point he was making is that going to unfamiliar spaces and and making uh the experience just a little more convenient because i know there are places i don't go only because i don't want to have to worry about parking or and that sort of thing you know yeah um so, so, yeah, lots of great conversations there. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with Lee. So by the time you're hearing this, um, I am getting on my way to actually go to Rochester. I'm not going to be there for the whole festival, but I'm going to uh, lead the opening panel discussion and get some interviews uh, while I'm there. Um, and uh, for that reason, in part, Scott, you're actually taking the lead next week um, with with the interview portion of uh, Triloquy. What, what, what can we look forward to? Next time, it is going to be with a friend of mine who is also a composer and working musician. His name is Devon Gray. 
Um, you might have seen him uh, on MTV with the band High Respects, uh, a local hip-hop band, but uh, he's classically trained, and uh, I think that you're really going to enjoy hearing his thoughts and also what it's like to be a composer in residence with a major metropolitan orchestra. Well, I hope y'all keep it trill. Scott Blankenship and Devon Gray next time on Triloquy. And before we let you go, I'd like to announce that our website is live. You can catch up on past opuses of Triloquy and keep up with the new ones by visiting triloquy.org. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G.